we're approaching the last Sunday of the new year. Um, I was kind of wanting to take the message in a different area today, and, and the Lord just did not let me get out of the Christmas story yet. Um, so we're going to be there one more time today um, in Matthew. And uh, I think it's something, again, that just kind of, you know how the Lord reveals new things to you off of Scripture? You've been reading the same Scripture for quite a while. All of a sudden, it's like, well, where did that come from? I've never seen that before. Uh, kind of one of those moments happened in the life and the story of Joseph, his perspective. So we're going to get there in a minute. But first, before we get there, I, I want you to imagine a scenario with me. And if you're a, an imaginer who likes to imagine with your eyes closed so the TV of your brain works better, you can go ahead and do that. But I want you to imagine with me this scenario. A young woman has been accused of being unfaithful before she was committing her marriage to her fiancé. She was found to be unfaithful. And so according to the Mosaic law, for her fiancé to discover that she indeed is innocent, she would have to go through a test of her faithfulness. And so here's how it would roll out. The fiancé male would accompany her to the temple, which for some could be miles away, could be a, a several days' journey. And he would bring to the priest an offering of basically the equivalent of two cups of barley. The priest would have the lady come into the part of the temple where the altar was. The altar had big steps that went up to the altar, and that's where the fire that constantly burned was at. And she would stand in the base of that altar holding her barley offering. And the priest would go over to the side of the altar and he would pick up a clay pot. And this clay pot would contain what was called holy water. And this was long before the Catholic Church. This was just water that had been set apart for God for the use of the temple. So it was holy water. And then he would do something kind of unusual. He set the pot down and he grabbed a broom and he would sweep the dust from around the altar steps collect it, and then he would pour that dust into the clay pot with the holy water. And then he would walk over to the young woman who's been accused of being unfaithful, and he would remove her head dress, which would keep her hair normally up. Women always wore their head coverings or their hair up in public, so that her hair fell to her shoulders, which was only done in the privacy of intimacy with her husband or if you were a prostitute. Kind of, again, just symbolic of, of the perhaps she's guilty of shame. And then he would place her under oath. And this is what he would say. If no other man has had sexual relations with you, and you have not gone astray and become impure while married to your husband, may this bitter water that brings a curse not harm you. But if you have gone astray while married to your husband and have made yourself impure by having sexual relations with a man other than your husband, may the Lord cause you to become a curse among your people. When he makes your womb miscarry and your abdomen swell, may this water that brings a curse enter your body so that your abdomen swells or your womb miscarries. Upon hearing the words of the priest, she would then reply, Amen. So be it. And then the priest would take a scroll, a small papyrus scroll or something of whatever, and an ink pen of the day and age, and he would write the curses on that scroll that he just spoke over her. And then he would take that scroll and he would 
put it into the container holding the dust and the holy water mixed together and wash off the ink. So the bitter ink also went into this pot. And then he would take the offering from her hands and place the clay pot instead in her hands. And then he would take the offering of barley and wave one hand of it in the sky before the Lord as a wave offering. And then he'd walk up the steps of that altar and he would drop the handful of barley onto the altar to burn. The other part of the offering would be set aside. And he would walk back to the woman and say, now drink. And he waited to see what would happen to her. That could have been what Joseph made Mary do. That could have very well been. And the reason I say that is because this was the test of an unfaithful woman. And in the story of the Christmas story, we can't miss this, it was perceived as though Mary was unfaithful. When you read Matthew's account, which shows us Joseph's side of the story, he was pretty certain that she had not been faithful. It also shows us something about Joseph. We're going to learn more about it here in a minute. And that was that he was a law-abiding Jewish man. And so when he was presented with a woman he was pledged to be married to who was pregnant, the only thing he could think of is what the law would say to do. And this was outlaw, outlined in Numbers chapter 5. He could have done that. He could have required that of Mary to prove her innocence. And like Joseph... Maybe we have felt that same kind of tension between living according to the law or living according to love. And he was hung in the balance between the two. Love, he loved this woman, but he also loved the law. So what was going to prevail? Maybe like Joseph, you've been in that tension before. As good Christians, you look at people and you want to judge and you, you want to point things out and you want to show how good and righteous you are, yet you also know there's this mandate we have of love. How do we live with that tension? I think we're going to learn some things from Joseph today. And so we're going to continue our series, Christmas Greetings, with our final greeting. We've looked at it briefly when the angel came to Joseph in a dream. And we're going to learn the angel brought him costly news, costly news, at least costly for Joseph. We know it was for Mary, but we're going to focus in on his side of the story here today. Have you ever received news, either good news or bad news, that was going to cost you something? Let me give you some examples. I mean, they, they, they abound, really, but let's say it's that moment when Nervously, you ask for that young woman's hand in marriage, and she says yes. Hopefully, that was good news for both parties. But how many know that good news is costly? Once you enter that agreement of marriage, it's costly. When you live for your spouse, when you die to yourself and live for them, it's costly. Not to mention the other costs that come along with marriage that some people just aren't willing to pay. So there's the good news of marriage, but, but there could also be the bad news. Anybody been surprised with bad news of back taxes or unpaid taxes? It's coming to be that time of the year, isn't it? Yeah, I remember the first year Trisha and I were in full-time ministry. This was back in 1993. Um, we were pastoring 
in a church down in Eugene. I was the children's pastor, young, naive. Nobody told me that I would have to withhold my own taxes from my payroll. As a minister, uh, there's kind of this unique thing that we deal with as self-employed individuals that we have to designate our withholdings. Before that, I was just a young kid paid by companies. I had my taxes withheld. But once I became a minister, I didn't know that little thing existed. Until one entire year after being employed as a children's pastor in Eugene, my tax preparer had some wonderful news for Tricia and I to say, you guys didn't pay a lick of tax the entire year you were employed. So we had good news that was costly for us, that we paid on for quite a while. Maybe you've had that kind of news. Or maybe it was the news, two couples standing, holding a plastic indicator that shows you're having a child. How many know that news is also costly? Not just for the woman who has to carry that child and the unique things that happen to your body, but also when that child enters your life and your home, the cost of your sleep, comfort, convenience, the real cost of raising kids today financially. It's costly, but it's good news, right? On and on it goes. Good news of buying a home, but the bad news of the mortgage. It's costly, right? So we see that generally speaking, news can be costly. And certainly the news that Joseph received about his fiancée being pregnant was costly news for Joseph. He had the choice of either losing the girl that he loved or losing his reputation. Which cost was he going to pay? So let's go to Matthew chapter 1, verse 18 to kind of begin to look at that. And this is um, a passage written primarily to Jewish, Jewish people, to a Jewish audience. So as you look at this, remember that Matthew's writing to primarily Jewish people, this story. That's why it features Joseph, the male character, more than it does the female character. Grab a Bible or a smart device or whatever you want to do to follow along with today's notes. And it goes like this, Matthew 1.18. This is how the birth of Jesus the Messiah came about. His mother was pledged to be married to Joseph, but before they came together, she was found to be pregnant through the Holy Spirit. Because Joseph, her husband, was faithful to the law and yet did not want to expose her to public disgrace, he had in mind to divorce her quietly. Let's pause there. I don't want us to fast forward the story to now looking back. I want you for a moment to insert yourself right into the story, real time with Joseph. Here's probably how these events rolled out timeline-wise, okay? Luke's account shows us the story of Mary, right? And so in the timeline, you have Mary being greeted by an angel who says she's going to have a baby. And it's going to be the savior of the world, Jesus, and that she's favored by God. She also hears that her cousin Elizabeth is also pregnant. After receiving this news and conceiving and becoming pregnant, she leaves her hometown to go visit Elizabeth. And she stays with Elizabeth three months. So what's happening to Mary's body over those three months? She's beginning to get the little baby bulge. She's beginning to show signs that she's pregnant. 
She stays with Elizabeth for those three months. There wasn't email, text messaging, social media, cell phones. We don't know what kind of communication that she and Joseph would have had. She returns from visiting Elizabeth, meets Joseph again, and something is obvious about her. So she shares the news with Joseph. She's pregnant. But it's God's baby, and it's going to be okay. He's a savior of the world. And Joseph looks at this 13-year-old girl who now declares she's pregnant from God and thinks, what in the world are you talking about? All right, so this is the timeline. And what's interesting for us is Matthew shows us something about Joseph. He says that Joseph was faithful to the law. Now, that's the part I always read over and read over and read over. And this time, it's like the brakes hit. They locked on that phrase as I was reading this passage during the Christmas season. And it's like, oh, my goodness. Okay, so I got to take you to my aha moment as I was looking at this. So Matthew was writing his gospel to Jews who are all about the law. That's their history. And they are, Matthew was highlighting the fact under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit that Joseph was faithful to the law. So all the Jews who are reading this would know what that means. They would all know he is like living according to the Torah, the Mosaic law, that he is upright and full of integrity, and nobody questions his, his love for the law. He is faithful. They would get what that means. And so all of a sudden, we see a different perspective of Joseph. Sometimes we make him kind of this rugged builder who's like, yeah, I go to church occasionally. You know, man, that's, that's not Joseph. He is faithful to the law. In fact, we get a little glimpse, even as we look at his own family, about the rich Jewish heritage that Joseph had. In fact, his father's name was Jacob. That was a name that he was given, I'm sure, by his father because of Jacob, the patriarch of the Jewish faith, who became the father of the 12 tribes that would become the 12 tribes of Israel, right? And so he's Jacob. He names his son Joseph, who was Jacob's favorite son, the son full of this promise and and power. And you know the story of Joseph. You've read the Old Testament, right? So here's Joseph, this great name of the Jewish history. His father is Jacob. You go up the family tree a ways. I know none of you read that, but that first part of Matthew, where it's all the names you you struggle over, right? If you go up to his great-grandfather to the power of seven, I'm not sure how else to say it, but it's like great, 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 you get the idea, right? Seven greats up the family tree is a guy named Zerubbabel. Now, maybe you're going, I don't know that guy. Sounds like a Flintstone character, right? I mean, who is he? Well, this was the guy who after the Israelites had been kicked out of their land of promise over to Babylon, lived in exile 70 years, they were allowed to return to their homeland, rebuild the walls of Jerusalem and the temple. This was the guy, his great-grandfather to the power of seven, was the governor of Judah who oversaw the rebuilding of the temple, the most holy place for the Jewish people. So you begin to see, this is not just some kind of insignificant Jewish guy. He has a rich Jewish history. He is faithful to the law. In fact, that was, that was something everybody 
strived to be. Much like if you're a businessman, your goal is to be the CEO. If you're an athlete, you want to be the all-star. If you're a Jew, you want to be faithful to the law. You want to be what the Greek call diakonos, faithful to the law. So what does that mean? Because that's not easy. It means that he was committed unswervingly to the law as given in the Torah, the first five books of the Bible. And there was a guy recently in, in, in our time who has tried to live by the Jewish law. He wrote a book about it, about his journey of trying to live according to the, the Judaic law of that, of that era. And it's tough. I mean, it's not easy to do that. And he is giving his life to being a good Jewish boy. What does that mean? That means he faithfully attends synagogue, not just when it's convenient, but he's there like every time the doors are open at synagogue. He memorized a significant portion of Scripture as a young man. He was soon probably to be a leader in his local synagogue as a young man who was faithful to the law. That means he didn't eat unclean food. So he wasn't invited over to the barbecue where they had baby back ribs on the trigger. He wasn't there. He wasn't going to eat what was considered unclean foods. He wasn't going to throw back a few cold ones with the tax collectors and sinners because he did not mingle with the people who were wicked in his community because that would make him unclean. He had nothing to do with those sorts of people. He didn't work on the Sabbath, although he could have made a few extra drachma. He didn't. He was faithful to the law. And as a builder, guess what? He needs to work to live. But he didn't. He honored the Sabbath. He didn't work that day. He would make trips regularly down to Jerusalem where he would be involved in all the special feasts and holidays and festivals. And he was there as a good Jewish boy. In fact, we see him and Mary and Jesus when he's 12, making that trek for Passover down to the temple. We know they lived according to Judaic law and he was faithful to the law. But now he has a dilemma. Because his pledged wife, which this betrothal was so committed that he could only break it with divorce. So technically, Mary's his wife. They have not yet had sex. That's not been consummated. They would be pledged to marry, and then it would be about a year's time before they would actually have the ceremony leading to consummating that marriage. And she is now pregnant. So with this news from Mary, he has got a problem because he knows whoever that father is, it's not him. The girl that he was promised in marriage is now going to have a baby. And in Nazareth, it's a small town. Anybody here from a small town? You're in a small town, guess what? News travels fast in a small town. So he's a righteous man with a pregnant fiance living in a small village where everybody knew your business. So we have this scenario. This is Joseph. And because we live on this side of the Christmas story, we want to kind of rush to the end where it's all okay and it's good news and it's happy endings. But we have to remember to put ourselves right in the thick of the story where Joseph lived and the tensions that he lived with. Because if we rush to the end and make it all good news and great joy, then we miss the whole point of what Joseph was learning. What we can learn actually as well from Joseph, that there's something amazing going on around the Christmas story besides the birth of Jesus, which is an awesome part of the story. I love that part. But there's a lot going on around it that we can't miss. 
Because you might miss out on how God is already beginning to redefine what it means to be righteous. He's starting to do a new work, especially in the area of what is concerned about righteousness. So, Put yourself in Joseph's place for a moment. Fiance is pregnant. Your whole reputation and identity revolve around one thing, the law, the Torah, and you are faithful. What the law says, that's what you do. No questions asked, you're faithful. And by the way, the Torah has very clear instructions about what should happen. You go back to Deuteronomy chapter 22, it talks about what happens to the girl who was pledged to be married who is unfaithful during her betrothal. It says this in Deuteronomy 22, 21. She shall be brought to the door of her father's house, and there the men of her town shall stone her to death. Guess who else is involved in that stoning? Her betrothed, as a man of that community. She has done an outrageous thing in Israel by being promiscuous while still in her father's house. You must purge the evil from among you. That is the fate that could have awaited, according to the law, Mary. Now, so maybe you're thinking, okay, so if she was away for three months, maybe she was unfaithful with some guy in the village where Elizabeth lives. Well, the law addresses that as well. Deuteronomy 22, it continues 23. If a man happens to meet in a town a virgin pledged to be married and he sleeps with her, you shall take them both to the gate of that town and stone them to death. The young woman, because she was in the town, did not scream for help. And the young man, because he violated another man's wife. You must purge the evil from among you. So what do you hear? According to the law, it's purge, purge, purge. It is call her out, separate the sinner from the community of the saints. She is not worthy to live. That's what the law is saying about Mary. And you could imagine how Mary would plead her innocence. Joseph, I'm telling you, I have not been unfaithful to you. Oh, yeah? Well, let's take you out of the temple and do that whole thing I talked about earlier in Numbers chapter 5. The Torah was clear, and Joseph's reputation was on the line of being a man who was considered faithful to the law. His fellow friends would have had no question what to do. Joseph, it's easy. She needs to be punished. This sin needs to be exposed. But Joseph couldn't bring himself to do this, I think because he loved her. And he was living down the tension between this love he has and the law that he's been giving his life to uphold. See, in the Old Testament, righteousness would have demanded that she be exposed and that her sin be paid for. A righteous man wouldn't hesitate, but Joseph hesitated. He couldn't bring himself to say the words to go public, even though he was a righteous man. It doesn't take much imagination to know how Joseph must have agonized in those moments. You're engaged to a 13-year-old girl. Your fiancé comes to you and says, I have some bad news and some good news. The bad news is I'm pregnant, though we're not married yet. The good news is I haven't been with anybody else. I mean, imagine... Again, Joseph, real time, this has never happened. She goes on to say, look, an angel came, hail Mary, full of grace, the Lord's with you, boom, I'm pregnant. It's God's baby. Joseph is not believing it. His mind cannot comprehend it. And she must have pled and defended her innocence. And imagine his struggle. She seems sincere. An angel, virgin birth, this has never happened. So he makes a decision. 
And what he decides to do makes sense. We're legally married by betrothal, so a divorce is the only option. It's a legal act, divorce. This way that he could minimize her suffering but maintain his status. So let's look at that. If that's the route he went, let's look at that for a moment. Mary would have lived in shame the rest of her life. She never would have married because she would be labeled now as the adulteress, and nobody would give their son to an adulterous woman. So yeah, she would live in shame, but at least in Joseph's reasoning, at least she'd be alive. So that's the best decision he could make. It was the most reasonable, so he made it. Now, let's continue the story, Matthew 1, 20. But after he had considered this, which was the divorce, the reasonable route, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream and said, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary home as your wife, because what is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will give birth to a son, and you are to give him the name Jesus, because he will save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had said through the prophet, the virgin will conceive and give birth to a son, and they will call him Emmanuel, which means God with us. So, I'm always the guy who looks at Scripture and asks the question, why? Maybe you're in the same boat. You read stuff and go, what? Come on, time out, why? So here's my why. Why did God make Joseph wait until after he had to kind of think through and wrestle with and struggle with all of this stuff and then have an angel come and tell him, it's okay, Joseph, don't worry. I mean, why make him wait, right? Why delay it? You know, you look at other accounts in Scripture like Abraham. God meets Abraham and tells him what to do. Not, not clear directions, but at least he's got an idea. God's calling me. He's telling me to do something. I'm going to go do it. You have Noah, build a boat, and here's why. Okay, I'm going to do that. You have Joseph, silence. Except what he's hearing from Mary, which doesn't make any sense because that has never happened in history. And then he has to wrestle with that and struggle through his feelings of love and yet his love for the law, and he's wrestling with that. You ever wondered why God didn't do this sooner? I think there's a reason why. Is it possible that anxiety removal is not God's number one goal for Joseph? Or maybe for me and you, for that matter. Maybe something happens in the wrestling in the questioning, maybe something develops in us that we need to pay attention to. Oh, yeah, it'd be a lot easier for God just to say, here's how it's going to go, go do it. But maybe there's something more in the anxiety. Maybe in this sense, God was allowing a ministry of disequilibrium that was going to throw Joseph off balance. So he'd wrestle with this stuff and go, what in the world? That doesn't make sense. God, what are you up to? And in that space, perhaps, of anxiety and stress, that maybe is where he can learn some things. Maybe Joseph was being prepared by God to come to a new understanding of what righteousness really was from God's perspective. So here's something I can think about today for me and maybe for you. If you're confused and disoriented like Joseph was or you're uncertain about something, maybe it's not because you've done something wrong. Maybe it's because you're about to grow. And I think that's where Joseph was. He did nothing wrong. Think about it. He's righteous according to the law. He's God-honoring, and this happens to him, and he's got to wrestle through that and, and grow through that, and he's learning some things if he will pay attention to it. 
So thankfully, God dispatches an angel and says, Joseph, don't worry. I'm up to something here. And maybe what we need to do, like Joseph, is wait on God and trust God's going to do something in your life that you maybe don't even know about yet. But he's preparing you in the anxiety, in the wrestling, in the growing, in the questions. I said this a few weeks ago, but I want to bring it back to our attention today because it's so fitting for Joseph. When we consider our circumstances only at face value, we risk considering God right out of our circumstance. This is something I think all of us need to take stock in. Because all of us have circumstances that hit us every other day or every other month or every other week. And we've got stuff we're dealing with, circumstances that we have. And we want to make rational decisions like Joseph with what we're presented with. And if we consider only at face value and not pause and say, hey, wait a minute, God, I'm going to stop. What are you doing? What are you up to here? I'm going to trust you right now. If we don't do that, then we risk considering God right out of that equation. And what would have happened if Joseph did? Jesus still would have been born. Would have been a more difficult story, probably. God's plan still would have carried forward, but not in the way he intended. So maybe we need to learn from Joseph to not consider God out of something. I wish that he would send an angel sometimes at night for me and say, Kelly, don't worry. Here's how it's going to all work out. He doesn't but he gives me a lot of wisdom in his word. And we have something that Joseph didn't have. It's called scripture. It's called God's wisdom revealed to us as people, where we pick up clues and ideas about what God wants us to do, how he wants us to approach our business life, how he wants us to approach our married life, our, our social life. Well, the angel says, Joseph, son of David, don't be afraid. Take Mary home. Now, why would he be afraid? Why would he be afraid to take Mary home? He loved her. He couldn't wait for their marriage to finally be complete. He was ready for this moment. Now, why would he be afraid? A couple of reasons that come to mind. One, he, he, he could fear offending God because he's marrying a, a woman who's pregnant. He could be worried that he's offending the Torah that he'd been living so hard to live by. But I think it's more than that. I think his fear is his reputation. He knew that if he didn't believe Mary's story very well, nobody else is. And all this life that he's been building up of being faithful to the law in one moment will be rendered useless as he will now be considered a lawbreaker. Not faithful to the law, but swayed by passions. Maybe even his own. If he married her, what would his, what would his friends think? Here's what would probably happen for Joseph, and maybe it did. He'd never be invited again to the homes of his friends. They wouldn't mingle with a sinner. He wouldn't be given their business, which he was depending on as a builder. He wouldn't be given that business any longer. He would never be again, uh, again admired or respected as a lover of the Torah. He would never be able to enter the synagogue as the respected man he was before. If he committed himself to this baby, this Maybe to be named Jesus, he would do so at an enormous sacrifice. So he's wrestling. But an angel had spoken to him. It's okay, Joseph. Take her home. Maybe he's thinking to himself, could it be the same angel that gave God's law to Moses? Maybe you haven't thought about this before, but in Galatians, Paul talks about this. He says this, it this way. The law was given through angels and entrusted to a mediator. That mediator was Moses. So maybe the angels are 
giving me a new way of looking at life, a new way of viewing righteousness. Let's go on. Matthew chapter 1, verse 21, or 24. So when Joseph woke up, he did what the angel of the Lord had commanded him and took Mary home as his wife, but he did not consummate their marriage until she gave birth to a son, and he gave him the name Jesus. So the angel appears, don't be afraid. Joseph does exactly what he's supposed to do. He takes Mary home. He does two things that I think are incredibly important that we can't gloss over. One, he marries Mary, which is a legal act. So what he's doing is is it means he was publicly claiming her as his wife. Secondly, verse 25 says that he named the baby Jesus. That's also a legal move. When the father names the child, It's an act that shows that he is publicly adopting and accepting this child as his own. So to a watching world, he marries an immoral woman who's having a baby that's not his. Now his days are numbered as a righteous man. In fact, they're over. They're over. And it would be a cost he would pay the rest of his life. You know, not just up until the birth of Jesus, Because even then, the whole world didn't go, oh, you're right, Joseph. I guess it is God's son the baby is. No. This is something he lived with all of his life. Let me show you why that kind of is is the case. If we go to Mark chapter 6, this is an account in the ministry of Jesus when he's an adult. He's 30 years, so this is 30 years this side of the story now. He's 30 years old. He's ministering and doing miracles, and he's catching quite a crowd, and he returns to his hometown of Nazareth. This is Joseph's hometown. This is Jesus' hometown. This is what happens. Mark 6, 1. Jesus left there and went to his hometown, accompanied by his disciples, and when the Sabbath came, he began to teach in the synagogue, the same synagogue his father went to, right? Okay. And many who heard him were amazed. Where did this man get these things? They asked. What? What's this wisdom that has been given to him? And what are these remarkable miracles he's performing? Isn't this the carpenter? Isn't this Mary's son and the brother of James, Joseph, Judas, and Simon? Aren't his sisters here with us? And get this. And they took offense at him. Now, why would they take offense at Jesus? Let me explain why. Sometime between Jesus' birth and then being 12 years old, Joseph kind of falls off the Scripture. We never really see Joseph mentioned again. A lot of scholars who have studied New Testament history believe that Joseph probably died somewhere in that window of time between Jesus being 12 and being an adult, because we never see Joseph again. But even if the father had died, the son would still be known as Jesus, son of Joseph. That was very common. In fact, in Scripture, you might see things like Jesus bar Joseph, or you might see John bar Zebedee, John, the son of Zebedee. You're always identified as the son of your father. Never were you identified as the son of your mother. Now, why? Many believe it's because the reputation of Joseph and Mary still is not great in Nazareth. What this could be the equivalent of saying, you know, isn't this Mary's son? That almost is the equivalent of saying, isn't this the son of a blank foul term used for a woman? And they took offense at him. 
So all the, no one is talking years that Joseph's reputation and now Mary and Jesus' reputation have been tainted. We're talking decades later. For a decision that Joseph made to take Mary and this baby into his life. And you know what? Since that time, millions of people have made that same sacrifice for the sake of this one called Jesus. Many people have given up their status, their possessions, their convenience, their freedoms, and even their lives for Jesus. But Joseph, who gave up his identity and his reputation for Jesus, hadn't even seen Jesus yet. Remember? Baby hadn't been born when he made this decision. He hadn't had the luxury of seeing his baby. And and when Joseph looked into the eyes of his peers, of his fellow community members, he would see nothing but people who could no longer respect him. In fact, he probably wouldn't meet eyes with most of his friends because they wouldn't lock eyes with him any longer. That's how they disrespected Joseph. But when he looked into the eyes of this baby, Jesus, that was born that day, I think he knew he made the right decision. You know, maybe God decided that Jesus would be called the friend of sinners because he was raised in a family that was considered second-class citizens in the Jewish culture in which they lived, outcasts, ostracized by their own peers. Maybe part of why Jesus had a heart of compassion for unrespectable people and those that were marginalized by their own communities is because he was raised by a father who sacrificed his respectability for him and his mother. Maybe one of the reasons that Jesus had compassion on women who were walking scandals, like the woman at the well that he met in Samaria, Samaria. maybe the reason he had compassion on them is because he knew what it meant to his mom that his father would stick by him, even with all the insults and all the accusations flying their direction. I think of how Jesus, as he was growing up, must have admired his dad's example of courage, sacrifice, and true righteousness. In fact, there was a time that Jesus was teaching the Pharisees and teachers of the law and the Jews that were gathered, and he said this, unless your righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees and teachers of the law, you will certainly never enter the kingdom of heaven. And I think in his mind, he was probably thinking, you know what, I've seen a better righteousness than you in my father, Joseph. Maybe God had a reason for this odd, painful, lonely way to start a family. And maybe God still calls people to be willing to die. Reputation, status, comfort, all for the sake of godly love. Maybe that's our takeaway from Joseph's costly news, is that we too should recognize that God still calls us to be willing to die to our reputations, to our status, to our comfort for the sake of godly love. When Joseph made the decision to wed Mary, he thought it was the end of his respectable righteousness. But you know what? It was God instituting a whole new kind of righteousness. Righteousness not based on the law, but on love. Isn't that what Jesus said years later when he was asked by a teacher of the law to summarize the commands? What is the greatest command? And what did Jesus say? Love God with everything that you are, right? And love your neighbor. He elevated the quality of those two commands into one. This is the greatest command, love. Paul picks that up. John picks that theme up throughout their letters that they write. This is the new high law we live by. It's called love. And love trumps the law all the time. And maybe that's the lesson we need to learn. 
Some of us as Christians, we are so self-righteous that we look with condemning eyes to people around us, thinking somehow we're better. And we say, well, I'm not one of those, or I don't do this, and somehow we think that adds value to our righteousness, when really what we should be doing to add value to our righteousness truly is loving the broken, loving the sinners, bringing them to a knowledge of who Christ is, not lording over them as though we're better. Because Jesus came, and that's who he ministered to, the broken, the outcast, the lepers, the sinners, the tax collectors. It was the sick he came for, not the healthy, right? But here's my question as we wrap this up today. What has this Christ-initiated righteousness cost you? What does it cost you? I know salvation is free. I'm not trying to say we have to earn our salvation. I know that by grace alone we are saved. But in our salvation, all possible by the grace of God, Jesus talks about this next phase of our life where we're to really consider the cost of what it means to follow him by doing what? Denying ourselves daily, taking up our cross and following him, to love the unlovely, to broadcast the message of the greatest news of all to all nations, to all people, right? But here's what I've discovered in the American church is that we have become so comfortable with our Christianish lifestyle of coming to church, giving in the offering, being do-gooders, but not really taking the next level of righteousness, which is loving people to the point where we're moved with compassion for them to know Jesus. What does it cost you of your reputation? Maybe for you, that means that you act one way at in the public sphere and separately here. Maybe what the true cost would be you living a life of integrity in every place, and you might lose some friendships. You might lose some respect from your peers that are not God followers. What's that cost going to be for you? I don't know. Maybe some of you, it's the cost of giving up what you're doing right now for the sake of pursuing God in some kind of active ministry. Like Joseph, I think we have to stop and consider that. So let's do that right now as we close this message out. Let's just close our eyes and Take a look inward again and just say, God, what has this Christ-initiated righteousness cost me? Maybe you've recognized that it's not inconvenienced you at all. It's not really cost you anything. It's just been a good Christian lifestyle, but maybe he's calling you to more like Joseph to be willing to forsake some of those things for godly love. So, Lord, examine our hearts. Right now, I know there are people under the sound of my voice who need to be stirred because they have friends and family that are far from you. And maybe they've been guilty of judging their family and friends rather than extending this great gospel the good news. So Lord, I I know like Joseph, many of us are hung up in that tension between loving people and trying to be good Christians. Why should we live in that tension? I think we could do both, God. Because that really is true Christianity, loving people as you love them and loving you with all that we are. So help us this year as we think about 2019 to be considering what cost maybe there will be in our lives this next year as we want to extend 
Christ-initiated righteousness, a righteousness based on love to those around us. Help us know that and be willing to step into it today. In Jesus' name, amen.